Good morning, everyone. It's good to be together again. Um, great to worship together as well and sense the Lord's presence amongst us. Um, we're, um, we've kicked into a theme uh, last week called the unfolding of the Great Commission. And, uh, oops, the unfolding of the Great Commission. And this series, um, I'm really excited about. It could go on for a while. Um, uh, but... <laughs> I think what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to have sub-series of this series, if that makes sense. And uh, so the sub-series of Unfolding the Great Commission is the origins of the church, although I haven't got a graphic or anything nice for that just yet. But there's so much that um, there's so much to say about the Unfolding of the Great Commission, and I'm re- we're really excited about delving into this uh, over the weeks together because we'd like to base our practice as a church on the biblical uh, account of the early church and um, to allow that to stretch us and to challenge us and to encourage us and to shape our thinking. Um, I, I love just reflecting <coughs> in prayer and in conversation on the Great Commission and on the Bible, first and foremost, and how we can be stretched and embed our story in the big story of God. Right. I'm going to refer to that uh, it'll be a question up on the screen in a moment. But really, really what we're after, and really what I would love, even though, at, you know, on a Sunday morning, whoever's at the front doing most of the talking, I would love us to feel like this is an ongoing conversation of uh, studying the scriptures together. Of course, somebody kind of preaching on a Sunday, but I'd love us to dialogue this a little bit as much as possible. I'd love your reflections on it. I'd love you to read and reread the book of Acts. You know, there's some things that you see in the Bible the first time, but there's some things that you don't see the first time. There's some things you only see the 13th time and the 64th time and the 150th time you read the Bible. Yeah, that's the beauty of it. And so uh, I really want to encourage you to, to read and reread this as long as, as, as well as whatever else um, your kind of staple dad is of Leviticus um, in the mornings before breakfast, all right? So I wouldn't want to take you away from that, but um, please do read, um, please do read Acts, and let's see what the Lord and the Holy Spirit wants to say to us. We started to look at the origins of the early church, and when we look at the origins of the early church, you have to really start Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, obviously, and that is the event that we know as Pentecost. For those of you who um, like a little bit of extra detail, Pentecost was the third or th- one of three different Jewish festivals that the the, Jew, the Israelites would have celebrated. And uh, Pentecost means Pentecost means fifty Pente, the fiftieth kind of day in the celebration of Pentecost at the end of the barley harvest and the start of the wheat harvest. There you go. You can throw that in that table quiz somewhere, right? But that that that's what the the word Pentecost comes from. But it was a interesting. It was a time of harvest, where the spirit came. Where it was all where it was going to be, as we'll see today, a time of reaping in the nations. And that's what it catalyzed. And the Holy Spirit came, as we learned last week. So quick recap on that, and birthed birthed the church. The Holy Spirit is the key agent, the key agent in the conception and the unfolding of the Great Commission and the birth of the church. And so in that way, the church is miraculous, supernatural. It's a supernatural phenomenon because it was born by the Spirit. It wasn't engineered by man. Man had to partner, yes, with what God was doing. But the Spirit came and um, and did a, an incredible work at, at Pentecost. And uh, continues then, as we all see throughout this series, the Holy Spirit continues to orchestrate 
the development of the church, and administers the dream of God for humanity, of which the church is central. And we'll see constant, sometimes you stop seeing it, but you'll see constant interruptions throughout the book of Acts of the Holy Spirit in order for the church to be and to do what God has called it to. And so we want to be a people that allow the Spirit to interrupt us, to be completely surrendered to Jesus. And in doing that, we allow His Spirit to come and do what He wants to. And as Jesus came and completed the work that He was sent to do, and then the Spirit, as He promised, was sent, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of the Godhead Himself, of which the Holy Spirit's part of, the Holy Spirit came to administer the work of Jesus and the cross through the church, he is the agent of God, if you like, on the earth today, the agent of the Godhead, the person of the Godhead, on the earth today, the Holy Spirit in us. There was the, uh, and so the book of Acts uh, starts with the objective facts that Christ is risen. There's nothing more objective, right, than a risen actual body from the dead. And so Luke wants us to know that there's been sightings, numerous sightings of a resurrected person. There was somebody that rose from the dead. It was a person of Jesus. And it starts with the objective facts and then the subjective experience of the Spirit. Something happens in individuals where an infilling of the presence of God comes in and through the person of the Holy Spirit. And uh, God's dream for the world has taken on a new beautiful shape because He is now filling humanity with Himself. This is what God has always wanted, and this is what always will be in the future. This is why we would often say something like the end times have already begun. Because what is going to happen forever and ever and ever is the presence of God is going to fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. And so when God poured out His Spirit to fill humanity, in a sense, the end times have begun. It's what we call the now, but the not, not yet sometimes. And, and so something, something incredible has happened at Pentecost, so we can never really hear enough about it uh, for two reasons. One, because it's just amazing to hear and to remember. But two, because we're constantly reverting to our own attempts to do stuff. And we need to be constantly reminded of our desperate need, as we sung this morning, of the Holy Spirit to come and fill us. And so not only... Did he come and fill individuals, but he birthed the church. And I want us to really get that today. Because so many, uh, in so many situations and circumstances, the, the, the church is about a, a bunch of individuals trying to do great things, which is part of it. But we don't know each other's name. We don't love one another. We don't sacrifice our lives for one another. We don't feel bonded and bound together in a family, and that's what the Spirit came to do. We sometimes say that little phrase, that the, 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 the 120 in the upper room, they went in as a bunch of individuals that came out as one body. They came out as one body because the Spirit, the Spirit of God filled each of them, and in filling each of them individually, He bound them together as a family. Later on, I think it's in Romans, it talks about how we are baptized into one Spirit. We're baptized in, in, in salvation into one spirit. And so this body, this family that the spirit binds together himself, we see a reflection of that straight after the outpouring, 
we're not, we're not going to read it this morning, but straight after the outpouring of the Spirit into humanity, at the end of Acts chapter 2 is those beautiful verses about the loving community that God has created, that they broke bed together and they shared together. All of a sudden, you start to see that the, the wineskin, if you want to put it like that, the container to hold the infilling and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was a community of people, was the church. And so the Spirit was doing a deep work, a deep, deep work. He was pouring out the love of the Father into the hearts of individuals, binding them together as a family, but he was also going to catapult them into a wide work. It was both deep and wide, and that's the Great Commission, right? From Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the very ends of the earth. This was going to have implications right to the ends of the earth, and yet in all of that, he said, but teach them, baptize them, and teach them to do all things that I have commanded you. It was, a, it was a deep work. It was a discipling work. There was a deep change and transformation that was happening within them as this was happening. And so we, we want to be looking at that over the, the next number of weeks and months, the, the depth of what was going on, people actually moving into Christ-likeness, being changed and transformed, but never getting away from and not allowing ourselves to be um, restricted or, or to get, getting too much into a maintenance mode that we forget about the width. We should be always sending. We should be always going as we're going to see. And so the Holy Spirit comes. The disciples are thrust out onto the streets, babbling, literally the good news of the kingdom of God. We recognize, and we'll talk about it later, that this was the antithesis of the project of Babel. Something not engineered by human hands. Something that we can't build by ourselves. Something that we have to surrender our hearts to. And as we wholly surrender our hearts, we get to participate and unfold the Great Commission. That, that's why we're on the earth, by the way. That's your ultimate vision for life. To fulfill the Great Commission. To go and make disciples of all nations. In whatever sphere of influence God calls you to do that. that that's, our, that's our ultimate goal. And um, the Spirit is the one bringing the dynamism and the power in order to do that. And so what I want to try and show you today, this is going to be a little bit more of a thoughtful teach today, okay? So hopefully you can come with me in this. But just we want to try and help set a bit of a template. That's what my goal is really today. A template to understand most of the rest of what we'll teach, okay? So I think it's quite important, but it's a bit of an overarching picture of how Luke constructs the book of Acts on his own gospel because he wants to tell us something. He wants to tell his readers something. And hopefully um, hopefully you can get this today as we, as we go along. For those of you who don't know, Luke wrote Acts as well as his own gospel. Okay, So um, some of you might like your box sets. Okay, Well, this was like a two-series box set. Okay, This was a two-part series. Luke wrote his own gospel and he wrote the book of Acts. Now, where we get the Bible, we have John uh, sort of in the middle. I was going to say shoved in the middle, but it was a bit more Holy Spirit anointed process than that, right? But John is in between those two, right? But for, for the purposes of what we're looking at, it's probably really good if you just think of Luke rolling into Acts. And I'm going to explain why in a moment. So I, I just want to give you a, a couple of verses that help show you the big, broad structure of what I think Luke's doing. It says this, and these are the very first verses of Luke's gospel, okay, which, of which there's 24 chapters in his gospel before he gets to the book of Acts. And it says this, <clears throat> many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled, right? So many people have tried to write about what's happened among, among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from whom the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. 
With this in mind, this is, this is key, right? Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Right? He's carefully investigated the whole story of Jesus. Everything that's going on. I too decided to write an orderly account for you. So what is or, an orderly account? What does that give you the impression? Does that give you the impression that he just like, you know, you know, just sat down and whimsically wrote something. No, he carefully constructed under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit an account of Jesus. And he, he wrote it for this guy, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus means lover of God. So that you may know the certainty of the things that have been taught. So, it's one of those kind of verses that you can skim over really, really quick. But this is Luke's introduction to his gospel. And he's saying this. I've really carefully investigated everything that's going on. So for those of you who like to be a bit more scientific about things, right? He's saying, I re- I've really thought about this. I've really done my research. And now I have constructed this gospel in a very orderly way so that you can be certain of what you've been taught. Right? I want you to be certain. I want you to have some structure and shape to your thinking. I want you to engage your brain as well as your heart so that we can understand what has been taught and how it's going to unfold, right? Then Luke goes on to, we're not studying Luke, but it just this is really important for, for where we're going. Luke goes on to give us the story of Jesus, and he constructs it in a certain way, which we're not going to get into this morning. But it's important, Luke chapter 4, where the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord comes upon Christ, and he is anointed to preach good news to the poor. Luke is telling us something significant about who Jesus is and what he's going to do. At the very end of Luke, Luke chapter 24, these are some of the last verses of his um, gospel. Then, this is Jesus after he'd resurrected. It says, then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead, and on the third day, Sorry, on, from the dead, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Right, so Jesus is saying, and Luke is telling us what Jesus said at the end of his gospel that the forgiveness of sins is going to be preached um, to all nations and it's going to begin at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father promised, which was the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Right? That, these are some of the last verses of Luke. Now, imagine John's not there. John's an amazing book, so don't imagine it for too long. Read it. But just for the, what, we're, what we're talking about here, right? Go to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Some of the first verses of Acts tell us, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes in you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Now, go, go back to see what it says there in the middle. The forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, your witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what has been promised by my Father. Stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. So it looks like pretty much the same thing at the end of Acts. Or, sorry, pretty much the same thing as the end of Luke as it is at the start of Acts. Right? There's like an overlap. This guy has thought through. And if it was to read the first few verses of Acts, it would tell us that he's writing to Theophilus again, the same dude. right? And he's telling us, that he wants to tell him something very significant. And then what we come to realize in, the, the book of Acts is the unfolding of just what Jesus said was going to happen. That's what the book of Acts is. It's not just a history book. It's not just, here's a few Acts 
that the apostles did thrown in in some kind of like, you know, mishmash. It's a very carefully constructed book because he's trying to tell us certain things. And ultimately what he's trying to tell us is that what Jesus did was going to happen actually did happen. It went from Jerusalem, it went to Judea and Samaria, and then it went to the ends of the earth. Because at the very end of Acts, the very last verses of Acts, here's what it tells us at the very end of Acts. For two whole years, Paul stayed there. There is Rome. What did Rome represent in those days? Rome represented the ends of the earth. All, the, all of civilization in some ways centered around Rome. And so Paul is there in his own rented house, under house arrest, welcoming all who came to see him. And there he proclaimed the kingdom of God and talked about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. I love that. By the way, without hindrance, that's how Acts ends. He's under house arrest. Think of the irony. He might not be in shackles because it's house arrest and he's in his own house, but he's bound. There's probably at least a big soldier standing at the door. The might of the Roman Empire. And yet the gospel will go forth without hindrance. Yeah? The Roman Emperor has been and gone. But the gospel and the preaching of the kingdom of God has gone on ever since without hindrance all over the world. And so what I'm trying to help you see here, and hope you can get this. Can you give me a, can you, can you give me a bit of a nod if you get this, right? <laughs> right? Luke is telling us at the start of his gospel that have carefully ordered and investigated everything, constructed my gospel, and they're going to follow that up in the next series, which is the book of Acts, to tell you something very crucial about who Jesus is and how he lived his life and how he was the Messiah, how he lived, died, and rose again. And then I'm going to tell you that what he said was going to happen, how this way that he had taught his disciples was going to continue through his disciples onto the nations, starting in Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and then right to the ends of the earth. And Luke has shown us in the book of Acts the big arc of the trajectory of the journey that Acts goes on, takes us in a straight line pretty much to Rome and to the preaching of the gospel. And, um, and so what we want to try and do is, as we see it unfold, as we see the gospel unfold in the book of Acts, we, we want to be inspired by that as a people. How does our story fit into the big story of the unfolding of the Great Commission from Jerusalem to the nations? And that's the journey that we're going to go on. The key to understanding Acts seems to be in Luke's interest in this movement orchestrated by the Holy Spirit of the gospel from its Jerusalem-based, Judaism-orientated beginnings to becoming a worldwide Gentile predominant phenomenon. Now, that's a bit of a mouthful, but it is amazing. Let me read it again. To the key to understanding the book of Acts is in Luke's interest in this movement, orchestrated by the Holy Spirit, of the gospel from its Jerusalem-based, Judaism-oriented beginnings, to it becoming a worldwide Gentile predominant phenomenon. The reason you're here today, the reason we meet here as a church, is because this thing moved. It moved from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And it had to go through, these are things that we'll study in the weeks ahead, it had to go through all, all the difficult conversations and, 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 and nuances that happened when it went into cultures that were different than the one that it started in. Because God is for all nations. 
this is what we learn. And so, as I've said a couple of times, our question is, in this movement, how do we, let's keep asking ourselves the question, how do we, as a church in Portadown, part of a family of families in Kurgavan, how do we locate our story, right, in this big story? How do we get caught up in what has been happening since that time of Pentecost? How can we ask ourselves and how can we learn from what happened there about how we can not just read things in a book to become a nice, slick church, but how can we be a people like the early disciples, surrendered to the movements of the Spirit and unfolding the Great Commission as Jesus asked us to? And so what I want to do in the next 15 or 20 minutes is talk you through three kind of key things that's important for us as we go through this. Is that all right? So I know I'm stretching your brains a little bit more today, right? But this, this is important for where we're going. Number one, if we're going to understand some of the key patterns and the kind of worldview that we have to understand when, when we're approaching the book of Acts in this way, <coughs> we're going to be looking at this through our understanding of walking in the way of Christ and his apostles. Now, what, what does that mean? Here, here goes my attempt to explain. Luke is joining us up with the mission of Jesus when he writes the book of Acts. So in his gospel, he's told us the mission of Jesus. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon him. He is the Messiah. And now he's linking up the book of Acts with his own gospel to tell us that what Christ taught us is now being fulfilled through his apostles. And so what we want to do is we want to walk in the way of Christ and the way of his apostles who continued to walk in the way of Christ. Because he taught them. So, so this movement that we're talking about, the found, who is the founder of this movement? The founder is Jesus. Jesus is the founder of the movement of, of, of the church. And so Luke is showing us in his gospel, Jesus is the Messiah, the one the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord's upon. And he's coming in a particular way to show us a way of living. What were the early disciples called? Followers of what? The way. They were called followers of the the way. Jesus came to show a particular way, and he called us to walk in that way. He called his disciples particularly to, fo- to follow in that way. Now, what the, the disciples became known as the apostles. <clears throat> and there's a distinction that's important for us to understand. Because a disciple, by definition, is like a pupil, an apprentice, a, a learner. And we never stop being disciples But it's important for us to understand the shift between disciples and apostles. Because an apostle, by definition, is one who is sent, a a messenger, an an ambassador, a a special kind of envoy representing someone else. And so originally the word apostle wasn't a biblical word, but it took on a different dynamic when they started to use it as a biblical word. The, The apostles were sent out representing Jesus the family of God, into new missional frontiers, breaking new boundaries to carry the kingdom message that Jesus had spent so long, three years, teaching them. And so they carry on the work of Jesus. They become crucial in the establishing of the church because they're the ones that hang out with Jesus pretty much every day for three years that become like him, even though they're flawed and human like us. Jesus chooses to build, what does he say to Peter? On this rock, I will build my church, right? They become crucial in the establishment of the church and the fanning and the framing of this new incredible movement that has been birthed to Pentecost. It's, it's, it's phenomenal what actually 
Jesus trusts him with. And it'll tell us in Acts 2 that when the disciples all met together, they prayed, they broke bread, and they gave themselves, it says, to the apostles' doctrine. What's the apostles' doctrine? It's not just a nice wee Bible study. It's the ways of Jesus. The apostles' doctrine was the things that Jesus taught the disciples who became the apostles, and then they taught the people. And so all of these people are getting filled and watching the Holy Spirit come, and Peter preaches, and all of a sudden they've got 3,000. 3,000 that they have to order into little families, households after households after households of little little people, lots of little houses of people <laughs> surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. And the apostles are teaching them the ways of Jesus. They're establishing them in this way. And so we want to be people that just don't know that we need to be saved in our head. We want to be a church that walks in the way of Jesus. It doesn't really matter how much you know intellectually about the Bible. If you don't walk and live in the way of Jesus, then it doesn't really matter. Because what the church is, is a continuation of who Jesus is. He is the founder. And the, 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 the biggest indictment of the church of much of the 21st century is it doesn't look like Jesus. It doesn't always look like the ways of Jesus. We don't forgive our enemies. We don't necessarily turn the other cheek. We're obsessed with money. When Jesus said, store up treasures in heaven. You know, we don't always look like Jesus is the church. And the church needs to get back to looking like its founder. And its founder is Jesus. And this is what the apostles taught. Love one another. This is what you see in Paul's letters. Love one another. Stop gossiping one another. Work hard with your hands. You know, don't be idle. Don't gossip. Don't be involved in sexual immorality. All of those kind of things are because that's what Jesus taught. And so when we say this phrase, walking in the way of Christ and his apostles, there was a way that was initiated. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus didn't say, here's a load of beliefs. Believe it. He said, I am the way. Follow me. Right? And so... As we go through this series, and as we develop and mature, and I think we are maturing. I really do think we are maturing. This is why we're going here with this kind of teaching. We are maturing as a people, but we want to mature in the ways of Jesus Christ. Yeah, That's what he's calling us to do. And the apostles were key in that. This is what it says in later on in Ephesians chapter 2. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens of God's people and also members of his household. It's a church. Look at this bit in bold. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. With Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So Jesus was the cornerstone. Everything takes its plumb line, if that's the way to put it, from Jesus as the cornerstone. If the cornerstone's not right, all whole foundation's going to be wonky. But Jesus is the cornerstone, but the apostles help set the foundations of the church. And, um, and that's what we want to do. That's what we want to be. We believe that the apostolic grace is still alive and kicking today. Yeah. Now, I believe that these guys were a bit unique. They were the apostles with a capital A, if you want to put it like that, because they saw the risen Jesus. They saw the resurrected Christ. They lived with Jesus for three years, right? None of the rest of the apostles are the people that were called apostles in the Bible. And there was other people called apostles in the Bible outside the 12, including Paul. But these, these, these guys saw the risen Jesus and they carried this message into the world. And so our understanding of who we are as a church must derive 
from how we understand Jesus. That's why we need to be obsessed with Jesus. That's why we never need to think that the Gospels are just the kind of thing you read to get you going before you get into the real meat of the letters. Right? That's, that's not right. Immerse yourself in the Gospels. Read them and reread them and let the words of Jesus shape and change who we are. So not only <clears throat> do we need to understand that we're walking in the way of Christ and his apostles, secondly, we need to understand that this was a genuine apostolic movement. Let me try and explain what that means too. In Acts chapter 2, what we read about is a proper movement. In culture today, people are all sorts, we're, we're kind of, we, we love the idea of movement today, don't we? Like, you know, things that are viral, how things move around the internet, right? This is the most genuine movement that has ever existed. It's the movement of Jesus Christ. And so when it said that, in that verse we read in Acts chapter 1, that the power of God, the weight for the power to come upon you, to be my witnesses. The word for power, some of you will know this, is the word dunamis in the Greek, which is where we get our word dynamite from. Right, so that's not static. That's not kind of boring and stodgy. That speaks to me of movement, inherent power residing in a thing by virtue of its nature, or which a person or thing exerts and puts forth. And so the, the dunamis power comes onto and cloaks and clothes the disciples, the power of God, and it thrusts them beyond. They cannot stay in that room. It like breaks down the barriers. And they spill onto the street speaking the words of Jesus. Christianity was a genuine movement of power and present. That's, that means we're never supposed to get stuck. We're not supposed to get stuck around conversations about buildings. They're important conversations. But if what happens in the world today, if most of our church meetings and most of our church finances are about upholding what we own, then we start to lose the genuine sense of movement. And God wants us to be caught up by His Spirit in movement. And maybe part of why we're still trying to work out where our long-term location is, is because the Holy Spirit's saying, as he recognizes that we're fickle as human beings and we get caught up around what we possess. But we have to be a surrendered people to Jesus to be truly caught up in the movement of his spirit, to go to the nations with the good news of the kingdom of God. It's never about building a monument. That's Babel. It's about surrendering to a movement. And so throughout the book of Acts, that's why we see, um, what did I see to have it here? tells us of an apostolic network of lots of different churches that start to get planted. Families in mission, it's a catalytic, organic, fluid, dynamic movement carrying the culture of heaven. And every time, that's what I love about the book of Acts, every time it feels like it's getting a wee bit settled, it's like the Holy Spirit bombs down on, on the gathering. And it's like, no! Peter, you think you're going there, and I'm going to wake you up on a dream one night with a Macedonian man going, you need to get over to Europe now. Or when, when they're together in Acts 13 and they're praying because they're in Antioch, they're like, we've built a really nice church here in Antioch, you know, we've built it up, first kind of Gentile proper church, and it's looking good, our numbers are going up, and, you know, our tea and coffee's maybe good, and it's a nice sense of family. And the Holy Spirit, like, he jumps into a meeting and goes, separate Paul and Barnabas for the work of the ministry. Because... There's other people outside that I, that I love. And this is what we see happening time and time and again 
uh, in the book of Acts. They're building and surrendering to movement rather than allowing themselves to get caught up in building a monument. I love this by Roland Allen, who's a kind of expert on the early church, and he says this, the rapid wide expansion of the church in the early centuries was due in the first place mainly to the spontaneous activity of individuals. The church expanded simply by organizing these little groups as they were converted, handing them on to the organization which she had received from her first founders. Who were her founders? The apostles, because they were shaped by Jesus. So they walk in the way of Christ and his apostles, and they keep multiplying, propagating themselves, little cells that become more little cells that become more little cells, and we see the church develop and grow. In AD 100, there was 25,000 Christians. Do you know how many there was by AD 310? 25 million. That is serious growth in a part of the world where the population figures globally were much less than they are now. But from 25,000 in AD 100 to 25 million in AD 310. That doesn't come by just maintaining and building nice gigs for our churches and trying just to attract everyone. That, that only happens when there's genuine movement. And this is what we want to be caught up in. We want to be caught up. How do we locate our story in the great story of God? That, this is how we apply this stuff. How do we as a people in Portadown, how do we locate our story in this big story? And so as we come to see in the book of Acts, we'll, we'll get into this next week, maybe in the next few weeks. But there's, I'll say this quickly and then move on. There's six kind of key phases in the development of the book of Acts. There's six times it says something along the lines of, the church grew and the word of God prospered, okay? Six specific times. And each time it says that, it's like a closing, a closing of the brackets around what God was doing in a specific area. So in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, it says that. But up until that point, it's all been centered around Jerusalem. And then it moves into Samaria. Philip is sent down to Samaria. And we start to see the kingdom break out there. And then there's another statement that pretty much says exactly the same thing in Acts chapter 9, verse 31. And then we're into Paul, Peter, Peter, sorry, having a vision, vision on a rooftop about things that he should eat that he'd always thought were unclean. And then we see the gospel move into Gentile territory. And then in Acts chapter 13, we see it move further. And then in Acts chapter 16, we see the same statement and it move into Europe. And before we know it, the gospel has made its own way into, penetrated the very heart of the Roman Empire. Right? And so 18 times it tells us in the Bible, in the book of Acts, that the church is growing. Eight, 18 times. It's never static. It's, it's always moving. And so Luke, what I'm trying to bring out here, the way we're going to read Acts, Luke is giving us a template to understand how the gospel moved from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. How what happened in the book of Acts is exactly what Jesus prophesied and proclaimed it would be. And so because of this, we have to conclude that first and foremost, the church is apostolic. We are a sent people. We're not a stay-at-home people. Now, some of us are called to be sent at home. But the moment that we think that our primary aim is to be here to look after one another, we've lost something. We're here to change the world. We're here to disciple the nations. That's why the church exists. 
A family, yeah, but a family on a mission. We are a sent people. We are here to disciple the nations. We're called to change the world, to carry the culture of heaven into all the nooks and crannies of the places where we live every day. A people established under the Lordship of Jesus, a family on mission. We are a sent, a sent people, right? And so if it can be a wee bit cheeky here, and provocative, if you don't mind me, you get to be a missionary tomorrow morning wherever you live and get paid for it. Because we, we're sent people. Wherever you work tomorrow, wherever you work tomorrow, wherever you go tomorrow, everyone, every day, everywhere, we are a sent people. Right? It's not about the laity or the church. We, when we say we're an apostolic people, we're slightly different than some of the institutions. And I don't say this in a derogatory way because I love them. And um, there's, there's reasons why structures are set up. But we don't believe in apostolic succession in the sense that it's only one person, minister to minister to minister to minister. That's not what we believe. We believe in the priesthood of all believers where every single one of us take on an understanding and a mantle to be a sent people. Now, God calls people to lead that and to shepherd that and to discern that. And there are certain people that I think have the function and the grace to be apostles even today. But in the most general sense of the word, every single one of us are called to be apostolic in the sense that we're sent. We're sent. We're part of a movement. We, we don't just come to a thing on a Sunday. We're caught up in Holy Spirit, dunamis, <laughs> dunamis power to move into the places where we're called to every day. And, um, and that's why we need the Spirit. Because if you're like me, it's easy just to settle it's easy just to get stuck. It's easy to look at all the other things that would make me feel that this church is successful. But if we're not caught up in the movement as a sent people, then we are not being faithful to the Great Commission. And what we want to do is locate our story in the big story of the Great Commission, which is that all nations will know the goodness of God. And finally, and this is... This is this is me, if you, if you would indulge me here for five minutes, this is me being like a proper Bible nerd, right? But there's something I want to show you here that I just think is amazing about the importance of Pentecost. Because Pentecost is where we understand that we walk in the way of Christ and his apostles as something is initiated. It's also the place where we realize we're caught up in genuine apostolic movement. But it is our understanding that Pentecost is the beginning well, the beginning happened in Jesus in his life and death and resurrection, if you like. But the redemption of humanity's vocation, our role as human beings on the earth, something is happening at Pentecost. Let me just try and explain this before we finish. Um, in Luke chapter 2, you know, you're, going, you're going, to have to like, going to have to like slap yourself in the head just to stay with me in this, right? Because this is a wee bit, there's a, there's a few, I'm going to jump about a few scriptures here, right? In Acts chapter 2, just before the whole, as the Holy Spirit fell, Luke tells us who was there. Because it was a festival, loads of people from the surrounding countries and districts, as they do for the Passover and the other festivals, they came to Jerusalem. It tells us they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. From every nation under heaven. Right? So people from every nation under heaven had made their way to Jerusalem. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all of these who were speaking Galileans? That's the district that 
they were in Jerusalem. Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? And then he lists these nations, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judah, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Perga, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Christians and Arabs, and we hear them declaring the wonders of God in their own tongues, right? So Luke is listing lots of nations to help us understand who's there. Now, that is thought by many to be an abbreviated form of what is called the table of nations and a reference back to a place in Genesis called Genesis chapter 10. And in Genesis chapter 10, after the big flood, Noah's three sons are listed and all of their sons and sons and sons are listed after that. And they are known, if you have a Bible with like has a little marker at the top, a little headline or subheading, it'll probably say on top of Genesis chapter 10, the table of nations. That's how they're referred to. And there was 70 of those, okay? Uh, the, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Now, I'm not going to bore you by reading through the 70 names because I can't pronounce most of them, right? But take my word for it, there's 70 stroke 72, Okay, there's somewhere around approximate figure, there's 70 of those nations um, listed. And the next chapter, though, so that's Genesis chapter 10. The next chapter, these nations build the Tower of Babel. So the 70 nations build the Tower of Babel, which is a monument, basically, that is onto themselves to get God to come down or to get up to God by their own human endeavor. Not, they're not submitted to God. And God has to judge that, and God comes down because, <clears throat> remember this, that their original, their original vocation in Genesis chapter 1 was that humanity would be scattered in the right sense of the word, that they would be fruitful and multiply. But because that they, weren't, they, they had chosen to worship themselves more than they had chosen to worship God, God had to judge them and scatter them, and they all went babbling in tongues that were confusing, which is why it's called the Tower of Babel, babbling. You get the connection because they weren't submitted. And after Genesis chapter 11, then you have Genesis, funny enough, Genesis chapter 12. And Genesis chapter 12 is a story of Abraham, right? So it's like God has had to judge the nations, the table of nations, the 70 represented because they've tried to build something of themselves. And he's going, I'm going to have to start again with a man and make a nation out of them in the hope that this man Abraham and his descendants and his descendants' descendants will be the people that exhibit to the whole world the goodness and the glory of God. And so that, that's how kind of the rest of the Old Testament unfolds. This people trying to be the people of God to show the rest of the world to be a light to the nations, to be a light to the Gentiles, to be a light of the goodness of God. But ultimately, the short story is that the children of Israel and the people of Israel can't do that in and of themselves. And Jesus comes along as the fulfillment of Israel, as the true Israelite, the one who can be obedient to God, the one who can showcase the Father's heart to humanity. And Luke is trying to tell us through his gospel and then into Acts that Jesus is reversing everything that's went wrong and that Pentecost is crucial in our understanding of where that comes. So in Luke chapter 9, Jesus 
called the 12 together. Who do the 12 represent? The 12 represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And now Jesus has reconstituted these people, the, the, the children of Israel, through the 12 to go with the power and authority that he gave them to drive out demons, to cure diseases, to proclaim the kingdom of God, to heal the sick. That's Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 10, the Lord appointed 72 others. He appointed 72 then in the next chapter, and he told them to pretty much go and do the same thing, to go over every town and place where he was about to go. He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And so what does that 72 represent? That 72 represents, I think, the 70 nations Way back in Genesis chapter 10, they built a tower unto themselves that God had to judge. They had to go and speak all these different languages because God knew if they clubbed together, they would destroy the world all over again. And God wasn't prepared to send another flood because it broke his heart so much the last time. And now in and through the person of Jesus, he is getting and gathering a people that are going to partner with him for his dream for humanity. And so in Luke chapter 9, we see him doing this through Israel and the 12 men who were his disciples, who became the apostles, who who represented the children of Israel, but then widening this out to saying, here's the 72 that are going to go and represent the nations that I still want to know, that I love them, and I'm for them, and I want to fill them with my presence. And so once we get to Acts chapter 2, Luke has already set us up for this moment when the Spirit is going to fall and the people in Jerusalem represent these 72 nations, and they're going to hear they're going to hear the good news of the kingdom of God now in their own language. This is how close God has come to humanity. Babel's sin of uniting and the consequent judgment of confused languages of people being scattered throughout the earth is now reversed to Pentecost. God causes representatives from the same scattered nations to unite in Jerusalem in order that they may receive the blessing of understanding different languages as if these are all these languages are all one. God is in Jesus and now through his church recapitulating everything that's gone wrong because of sin. And he is forming in himself one new humanity. This is what we get to be part of. <laughs> This is the movement of God that we get to be part of. We're not just showing up, getting a few people to serve and a few ministries to try and like make this thing work on a Sunday. That's important. But I, I wanted to widen your lens a little bit this morning to give you the big global picture, the big global vision of what we're part of, which is the movement of God's people in and through the power of the Spirit into the nations to carry the good news of the kingdom of God. And so wherever we go this morning, sorry, tomorrow morning, wherever we go tomorrow morning, we are a sent people. We are caught up in movement. And I don't know about you, but that's why I am desperate, more desperate than ever for the dunamis of the Spirit. Because without it, some days I don't want to break down those barriers. Some days I don't want to go out into the street to declare the good news of the kingdom. Some days I don't want to have the risk and the courage and the faith to go beyond 
just what I'm building for myself in order to declare the good news of the kingdom of God. I need the Spirit with my heart's desire, partnering with His desire to fill me. I need, I need Him. I'm desperate. We're desperate for Him. And the church in the West is desperate, desperate for a moving of the Spirit to break into our life, to break into our churches, to leave us all wrecked, to get us to the point where we're, we don't even know how to communicate this in English anymore, the way it's coming out. We find a way, but we will find a way with the wisdom of the Spirit to communicate in the language of the people there. This wasn't the tongues that sometimes you hear us speaking in in church. This was the tongue, the mother tongue that they didn't know of other, or of other provinces and nations that could now hear in their mother tongue, in their mother tongue, the good news of the kingdom of God. And God, by the Holy Spirit, wants some of you to speak the language of health and education and business in a way where you work every day where they can hear in the tongue that they understand in that particular sphere the good news of the kingdom of God. That's what God is anointing us to do. That's what we're caught up in. And I, didn't, I don't want to be part of planting a church that just every year we go through, oh, we went from 150 to 200, and we went from 200 to 300, and then we got a bigger building, and oh, we're brilliant now because the worship's got bigger, and the coffee's even better, and that more people are coming, and our kids' stuff is going, and we all pat ourselves in the back. If we're not fulfilling the Great Commission, we're not being obedient to the person of Jesus. And we're not being obedient to what Jesus has called us to be part of, which is to surrender our whole hearts very devoted love for Jesus, to be completely surrendered to that so that we can be caught up in the movement of Jesus Christ through the filling of the Holy Spirit to take the gospel to the nations. If a movement is to genuinely be a movement, then it needs to keep on moving. And so as a bunch of leaders, the way we will critique ourselves, the way we will self-reflect if this church has been obedient to the Great Commission will be, are we moving? Are we moving? Now, I don't mean that necessarily means necessarily moving locational time, but are we moving as a people because it's the people that the Holy Spirit filled? Are we moving? Is there a dynamism of the Spirit? Are people getting saved? Are people growing up in leadership? Are we sending out missionaries? Are people being bold and courageous? That's the stuff that we need to pray into the body of Christ. That's the stuff that we want to give our lives for because this is what we get to be part of, the complete reversal of a time when human beings got together and said, here, we could build a really good thing. We could build a really good thing. Reach up to the heavens, you know. We could nearly get there ourselves. This is the complete reversal of that. This is lives that are completely surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Filled with the power of the Spirit. <laughs> with the dynamite of the Spirit thrust and propelled into the world to carry the good news of Jesus Christ and the inbreaking of his kingdom into all of humanity. That's what we get to be part of. And that's what I want us to keep asking the question. How do we locate our story in this great story of God? Amen. Stand to your feet, let me pray, and that's us finished. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Just um, as you stand, just let me read one more quote over you. <laughs> J.B. Phillips. This is, this is inspiring. Without going into wearisome historical details, 
we need to remember that these New Testament letters, right, in the early church were written, and the lives they indicate were led against a background of paganism. There was no churches, no Sundays, no books about faith, slavery, sexual immorality, cruelty, callous to human suffering, and a low standard of public opinion were universal. Traveling and communications were chancy and perilous, and most people were illiterate, right? It doesn't paint a very rosy picture of what it was to try and plant churches and to be Jesus followers, right? But this is what these early Christians were up against. Many Christians today talk about the difficulties of our times, as though we should have to wait for better ones before the Christian religion can take root. It is heartening to remember that this faith took root and flourished amazingly in conditions that would have killed anything less vital in a matter of weeks. These early Christians were on fire with the conviction that they had become through Christ literally sons of God. Listen to this. They were pioneers of a new humanity and founders of a new kingdom. They still speak to us across the centuries because if we have believed what they believed, we might achieve what they achieved. <laughs> pioneers of a new humanity founders of a new kingdom. Jesus didn't come to tweak the world system. He came to set up a new system. And it's called the kingdom of God. So God, I pray in every one of our hearts today for the illumination and revelation, the stirring of your Holy Spirit that cause us as individuals to take up our role in this great story, the unfolding of the gospel of Jesus Christ to see disciples made in every nation. And Lord, I pray as a church and as a body, as a family, that you've called us to locally find out and understand what this means for us here. Lord, would you be help us to be faithful in our own Jerusalem? And Lord, in the days ahead in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Lord, we pray that your spirit would come in power. Come in power, God, even now. Come in power upon us, O oh God. Empower us, O oh God, for tomorrow, for this afternoon, for wherever you find ourselves. Help us to be a sent people. Lord, help us not to drive our tent pegs into the ground too, 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 too hard, too robustly. Help us not to get too settled where we are right now, Holy Spirit, so that we can be blown by the wind of your Spirit to the places where you want to take us with the good news of Jesus. So bless every person here today. Bless every heart. Bless every family represented of God. May we be in small ways in our own nuclear families and as a church here together, may we truly be a family on a mission together for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.